out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's cut to the chase here. This week, it is going to be the turn of the buzz tones because I spoke to Rudy Petrudi very recently in Berlin. I know, we are so international here. Uh, to find out more about life, love, poetry and rock and roll. And uh, yes, this is the interview. As you know, one of the greatest bands of all time. Um, yes, it's quality chat all the way. I know when I listen to other, other podcasts, people really like to big these up. <laughs> like every week is the best interview ever. I'm not going to do that. I just think this was a good one. Um, yes. So look, after the usual chat of, you know, getting to know each other, as you do in showbiz, we got down to that exciting business that was, um, well, I started to talk about uh, Marky Smith and The Fall, who'd done a cover of Strychnine that um, Rudy had never heard of before or didn't know existed. And uh, he had a few amusing stories about the band as well, because he uh, sort of, um, yes, remember the keyboard player with great fondness. But anyway, after mentioning this uh, interesting fact, this was Rudy's response to the idea that Fall had uh, covered one of their numbers. And um, as I said, he didn't know. And this was his response. Rudy, save this interview now. This yeah. is the first time I've ever heard of that. That's also <laughs> crazy because 27 is some kind of a mystical number for me. It shows up every day in my life uh, at in, in some sort of important way. Very strange. Right. Well, 27 points. Bizarre. You'll have to, if you go and, I don't know if you've got Spotify there, but um, yeah, you'll be able to find I never, it. I never check it out, but I will. Yeah, so you'll be able to hear I'm still that. kind of stuck in a time warp, but I, I'm not really uh, too cognizant of uh, current, you know, ways to go about things. Yes, well, that's 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 life. But look, is it possible? Because it's always curious to know what your kind of the formative teen years. You know, what what was the kind of thing that was driving you forward on that musical moment? Because for me, I've, I've sort of been my age. I was born in the sort of, I suppose, mid sixties. So it was the seventies that I became obsessed with music. With, I suppose, you know, the glam bands plus people like Alice Cooper with Schools Out and then David Bowie. So what were your kind of formative years from the age of 10 onwards? Well, first of all, I lived in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania was a really backward place to live. Uh, I don't think I even saw a black person till I was 17. Although I, I started collecting music uh, records when I was 12 and my main guy was Chuck Berry. Right. Uh, I got turned on to music by the Beatles, like most kids, and um, I got in their second album. And uh, the song that really stood out to me on that album was a song called Rollover Beethoven, which was, of course, by Chuck Berry original. And uh, at the very same time, uh, there was this song on the radio that I really loved. It was called um, No Particular Place to Go. And that was by Chuck Berry. That was a hit of his at the same time that the Beatles were out. And uh, I was one of these nerdy kids who would buy an album and then read every single thing I could, including the uh, the credits on the label, you know? Yes. Um, because back then, buying an album was much different from buying an album today. I had a 25 cent allowance and I, uh, was mowing lawns for 50 cents and an album was $2.99. So I had to work to buy an album and not just one or two lawns. I had to mow a few lawns and, <laughs> and collect a few weeks of, of allowance. It, it was a big pain in the ass for a 12 year old kid. So when I got an album, I played that album over and over and over. And when I finally got a Chuck Berry album for the first time, it totally changed my life. Uh, I had, you know, all of a sudden, it, it wasn't just no particular place to go and roll over Beethoven. Every single song he did just blew me away. And so then I found more out about him and I found out he played guitar. He was the guitarist on these records. The guitar playing was amazing. 
and that's what got me into wanting to play guitar. And uh, I got my first band when I was 14. That was in 1966. And the term garage is not a term that we used in the 60s at all. Uh, it's, it's in retrospect that um, the media labeled it garage. Yeah. But at the time, Question Mark and Mysterians, Count Five, The Seeds, 13th Floor Elevators, they had hits on the radio and we called it Top 40. You might hear Pushing Too Hard by The Seeds followed by uh, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love by Dean Martin followed by uh, maybe Paperback Writer. And then after that, it might go back to Kingsman, Louie Louie, and, and uh, you know, it, it was all rock and roll. It was all top 40, uh, it, even with Dean Martin, it somehow fit together. And when you're a kid as young as, as my band was, we were all 14, 15 years old, we weren't very good musicians. So we would pick the simplest stuff to play, which is now called garage. So we learned Hey Joe and uh, House of the Rising Sun and Louie Louie and Gloria. You had to do Louie Louie and you had to do Gloria. Yeah. That was essential in every set in 1966 because you would get asked for those two songs. In fact, you'd usually have to play them three or four times in a night. So that's, that's pretty much how I got into that kind of music. Uh, as time went on, it changed, you know, like by 1970, Hard Rock had come in. And being in Pennsylvania, we didn't really have uh, any sort of uh, market for original music. If you wanted to play gigs, when I was a teenager, we played teen clubs. I don't even think they exist anymore but there were clubs where you had to be like 14 to 18. And back then 18 was a drinking age in, in Pennsylvania. It changed when I turned 18, then they upped it to 21. But um, yes, difficult. But, but anyhow, you know, by 1970, you had to play Grand Funk Railroad and, and Deep Purple and uh, Alice Cooper, which is great. I was really into Alice Cooper. And uh, so I did that for a long time, you know, I played whatever was popular. Yeah. Uh, and then about 1976, I started to read about the CBGB scene. And it just fascinated me. And it also, the little bit I heard, you, you had to realize that when it was started, starting to get written about, there wasn't much out. Patti Smith and the Ramones albums were, I believe, the first two albums that came out of that. Yeah. And everything else you'd just read about, you'd have to imagine what, what they were like. Television, uh, Richard Hell, Heartbreakers, on and on. But I had been very into the New York Dolls. And from what I read, it just seemed to me that a lot of these bands were going back to more basic three chord, three minute songs, like what I remembered playing when, when we started out in 66. So that really fascinated me. And I started to write songs in the, in the style that I imagined they would play. Because like I said, I hadn't heard anything but the Ramones and Patti Smith. So my first band, when I started to write a lot of material, was Tina Peel. I had written a few songs in 66, but like three or four. And we actually revived them in Tina Peel. And later on, we revived them in the Fuzz Tones. Um, I think uh, Highway 69 is a song I wrote in 66 that was originally called Crotch Rot. And then later on, I changed it to Fabian Lips for Tina Peel. And then in in Five Stones Changed to Highway 69. Uh, Brand, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Crotch Ride. Uh, it was called Bandit. It's on the, uh, it's on YouTube. You can actually look up Rigor Mortis Bandit and you can hear the original version of it. And then um, Brand New Man was originally Crotch Ride. 
And then in Tina Peel, we changed it to a song called There's a Boy in That Bag, which was a song about uh, homosexual serial murders in Texas in the 70s. So, um, you know, I used that as a, as a springboard yes. for where we went with Tina Peel. Tina Peel was more like a, a bubblegum punk. We were really influenced by the Archies and the Monkeys and the Dave Clark Five and the Dictators. So the Dictators was the punk part of it, but it was also the humor aspect of it, very satirical, very cynical. And then we put three-part harmony in it, like 60s bands, you know. But we were very, very wholesome looking. The music wasn't wholesome at all. Well, the music was, but the, the lyrics weren't wholesome at all. So we kind of offended everybody, including punks, which I thought was really good because to me, the ultimate punk is a punk that can offend a punk. Yes, well, absolutely. So. And did you, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting because one of two of my kind of heroes, I suppose, was David Bowie and then Lemmy from Motorhead, because they often, when they were asked that question about early musical influences, they all both would say Little Richard, who I think they were a bit older than you, but um, they said that you know, the first time they heard Little Richard, it was just like, oh my God, this is, this is what I always want to do. And obviously that led on to all the other people that you, you could imagine, like Elvis and then obviously the Beatles. I can, I can totally understand that because Chuck Berry being a 50s icon led me to Little Richard, Bo Diddley and Jerry Lee Lewis. And all of them to me are the real true kings of rock and roll, those four guys. I don't include Elvis in that. I thought Elvis was more important for breaking the door down than anything else. But I thought the real true talent were those four guys. Yes. And Definitely. also they uh, they had the staying power. After oh. Elvis went in the army, he just, you know, he lost it as far as I was concerned. So um, Yes, his his film his films weren't that great, were they? The Colonel yeah. Parker film period was yeah. yeah, I mean, he did two or three good ones, the very first ones. And then it was stuff like uh, Girl Trouble and, uh, oh God, I can't remember, but some, you know, real. He did an amazing film with Anne Margaret in uh, Viva Los Angeles. Yes, that was amazing. Yeah. You know why I think that was so great, though? It's because their interaction was so believable because it was real. You know, I mean, he was. Uh, he was seeing her on the side and it was very obvious when they did their scenes that they they really connected you know so yeah that was a great one no and just Viva going, Las Vegas right Viva Las Vegas but just going back slightly you know with that sort of 60s period you know there was the sort of whole counterculture you know the hippie kind of movement Woodstock did that did that sort of and obviously sort of 67 was the summer of love and you had some you know in the in San Francisco you had the gathering of the, of the tribes which was in you know Golden Gate Park were you at all influenced by that hippie movement or was that something oh that yeah yeah I was I and and probably in ways that uh would surprise people not the drug part um, I didn't do drugs until much later, but the hair part, I really liked long hair. I started growing my hair when I saw the Beatles, but by the time the hippie movement uh, happened, then you could really have real long hair. And then Alice Cooper came and then you could have really, really, really long hair, Black Oak, Arkansas, you know, Blue Cheer, these guys who had hair down to their asses. And I thought that was really cool. And I still do actually. Um, and what do, and what do Especially you now, because almost nobody has long hair, so I think it's even cooler to do it now. No, the trend is definitely short hair, isn't it? Apart from yeah. the fact that we can't get to a hairdresser at the moment, but that's, that's, a, whole <laughs> other, that's a whole other issue. Did you, what did you think when you first heard Black Sabbath then? Because you mentioned sort of deep purple. I, I loved them. I but, loved um, them. I thought they were great. You know, it's funny though. I, I, t I tell you, um, after Black Sabbath, uh, I got into Jethro Tull, as you could probably tell if you listen real close to Bad News Travels Fast, because um, I, I ripped the chord sequence off of Locomotive Breath and I just changed the E minor to a major. But um, if you're going to rip off somebody, don't rip off the obvious. Go to some source no one would ever think you would take anything from. But um, the interesting thing is I had a band in 
72. And we covered a lot of Tull. And we had a singer who, uh, who played flute and he could imitate Ian Anderson singing and flute playing to a T. And we covered a couple Black Sabbath songs. And one was a song from their first album called Wicked World. And when you put the flute in it, it sounded exactly like Jethro Tull. So then I did a little research and found out that Tony Iommi was actually in Jethro Tull. So that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It does. They, yeah. It does all make sense. And also some of their early albums, they did, they had, I suppose it was quite blues based. So it had that slight heavy, heavy kind of slightly rock sound to it. Um, and I yeah, must admit they, exactly. they, they were, um, yeah, minstrel in the gallery and uh, Benefit and Stand Up were fantastic. I did sort of quite like a bit of sort of country R&B. There you go. That's it. And so as, as because because obviously during the 70s, you did have the, the sort of the West Coast, the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, then you had prog rock as well, you know, with Yes and Genesis. And did any of that kind of? No, <laughs> I, I was never into progressive rock. Uh, Yes. The closest I think I ever got to progressive rock is the music machine. They're called garage, but I, I can't agree with that. Um, music machine and iron butterfly are about as close to prog rock as I could handle. Uh, yeah. Very detailed stuff, but um, they kept the rock element, you know. Uh, I think Gentle Giant and Yes and all these bands like that, they totally lost the rock element. But um, the music machine... Uh, always had that as in the forefront, you know, so uh, I yeah. guess that would be about the closest I could say. So look, most people have one band and it's so traumatic, they, when it breaks up, they, they sort of give music a, a bit of a, a miss, but obviously you, you don't after your first band in the, in the sort of late 70s. Did, um, how did that sort of finish? Did, you, did it feel like it run its course or was it just... Which band is that? Um, you're, you're sort of the 176 Teen Appeal. Oh, yeah, it kind of ran its course. It's funny because we we ended up um, headlining major clubs in New York, uh, the Ritz, Hurrah, very big clubs. Um, we were making a thousand bucks a night, which was real good money in New York at that time for an unsigned band. And by 1980, we had had so much trouble getting members in the band, first of all. It's very, uh, I brought my band there, but my bass player quit just before we moved. And we had so much trouble finding a bass player that for the whole four years, it was just a big, big problem. And we also had a, a very hard time finding places to rehearse that we could afford and taking our equipment around. It's very, very difficult in New York. Uh, studios are expensive and the equipment is really bad. And getting there, you have to take a taxi. You can't take your equipment in a, uh, in a subway, you know. Uh, it was just headache after headache, you know, and, and even though we did really well, we had a really good uh, uh, following and we even had uh, record labels interested in us. We couldn't keep the, the bass player. We could never get a good bass player. And if we had him, then he would always just be a big headache. So we just finally got fed up. Yes. And, and we didn't want to break up because of course we were making money. So me and Deb O'Neill, who was in Tina Peel before Fuzzstones, we decided we needed an outlet that would be fun because we just weren't having fun anymore. So at that point, I had kind of rediscovered what they now call garage. Uh, and it kind of just came out of nowhere. Just one day, I just started thinking of these old songs that we used to play and how much I missed psychotic reaction and pushing too hard. I couldn't even tell you why. Nobody was playing that kind of stuff in New York. Not at all. But um, there was a record fair. And I went to the record fair and I had some money in my pocket. And I just looked for some albums by those people. You know, I had only ever heard one seed song, which was on the radio, Pushing Too Hard. I had only heard Count Five do Psychotic Reaction, never heard their whole album. 
So I bought four albums that were along those lines. Syndicate of Sound was the other in, in The Leaves. And I took them home and I listened to the whole record and it was kind of an epiphany. You know, these guys were playing really simple rock and roll, but it was very heartfelt. It had a real charm to it. It had a real sound to it. And I just started to get obsessed with this kind of music and Deb loved it too. And uh, we decided what we do is we would start another band, which would actually be Teen Appeal, but we'd learn a set of this kind of music and we'd change our name and we'd be our own opening act. So originally, Teen Appeal was kind of flashy and campy and had that kind of bubblegum sort of element to it. So we were kind of in that mind frame. So the, at first we called ourselves the Fabulous Fuzz Tones. And we got a bunch of uh, outfits made by uh, a seamstress in New York. They were very outlandish. They were like a cartoon of what garage punk was. Like if you took Sonny Bono when he was in Sonny and Cher with the fuzz, furry fuzzy vest, right? Mm. We'd have like a fuzzy orange vest with a super loud paisley shirt and, and super loud bright colored pants and stuff, you know, but very 60s looking, but it was over the top because uh, Tina Peel was over the top. We used to dress everybody in black and white clashing polka dots and stripes and we do all of our equipment in black and white contact paper with different designs like that. And then we play in front of a big backdrop of a black and white concentric circle. So you kind of got dizzy when you watched us. So we were in that kind of mind frame to do that with the fuzz tones. But what surprised us is we did our first show opening for the fuzz tones and we went over better than the fuzz tones. I mean, sorry, opening for Tina Peel. And, and then me and Debs thought, wow, well, we're doing better than Tina Peel. And we like this music better. We, we're actually sick of this stuff in Tina Peel because of all the problems. So it kind of makes you not like the music anymore. Let's just be the fuzz tones. <laughs> so immediately the, uh, the other two guys in Tina Peel quit because they didn't want to be the fuzz tones. So me and Deb have to start the fuzz tones again from nothing. So we worked on that for two years uh, before we ever played out. And uh, we, um, we went through several people and, uh, and started playing out. And, and uh, we'd play Monday night at CBGB's for $10, the split four ways. And that lasted until 1983. We got one good gig. Uh, it was a place called The Cavern which uh, was in, in New York. It was a place that I had never heard of before or since. So I don't know if they had bands all the time or not, but it was a big event that uh, some promoters put together called Psychedelic Weekend. And they had three bands on every night for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And in my opinion, none of them were psychedelic, but except for us, but they had um, bands that were influenced by Teardrop Explodes, and uh, Spaceman 3 and stuff like that, okay? Yeah. So I guess modern psych, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, slightly. And uh, anyhow, we were like the hit of the thing. And, and it was really, really packed, a thousand people or so. And then all of a sudden, this kind of stuff was more accepted in New York. And then somebody put on a psychedelic garage show at Pep Lounge and didn't invite us to be on it. And after that happened, then the garage scene came into effect. And that was like late 83, early 84. And then we started getting good gigs. And, and we, uh, we added another guitarist and a, and a new bass player to the lineup. And that's the Lysergic Emanations lineup that everybody's familiar with. Yes. And from then on, the band was really big. We... Yeah. We went over very good in New York. We, uh, we got almost only headlining gigs. The only times we ever opened were for very major bands that would come into town. Because isn't, yes, because in the UK, I mean, there'd been the sort of punk scene and then post-punk, I suppose, with bands like P3 
Peel and Wire and Nightingales and Gang of Four. And then there was a sort of, there was a few years where there was a slight, the pre-indie world that was kind of bands like the Smiths, I suppose, and the Echo and, Be Echo and the Bunny Men and, and U2 and Simple Minds and bands like that. But there would have been the other scene, which was like Alien Sex Fiend and The Cure and The Cult and Susie and the Banshees. So there, and then that psychobilly world that, that was, you know, also coming along from like bands like the Stingrays and you'd have the Cramps. So did you, did you sort of feel that you, you know, you were sort of straddling different worlds because there was no other band that, you know, was like you at the time, was that? Were you? No, no, there wasn't. Uh, the only thing that was even close were the Cramps and the Flesh Tones. The Flesh Tones were also very heavily in influenced by 60s music too. But they were much more influenced by soul bands and frat party bands like uh, the Swingin' Medallions and uh, Kingsmen were really the sort of thing, party music, you know? Yeah. Something you'd hear in the movie Animal House was, was really pretty much what the Flesh Tones specialized in. The Cramps were much more rockabilly influenced, but, but really obscure rockabilly, right? So I always considered the Fuzz Tones to like kind of be a, a cousin, a psychedelic cousin or a garage cousin to the cramps. I think what we did with garage music and with psych music is what they did with rockabilly. We kind of updated it, uh, added a dash of humor, a dash of horror, uh, a dash of irony. Uh, we weren't purist, you know. Uh, after us, there were a lot of bands that were very purist. They wanted to sound exactly like the Pebbles albums or the Nuggets albums. But even when we covered those songs, we never stayed true to them and we never intended to. We could play those those songs note for note easily. But, you know, I'm of the opinion you have to, uh, you have to put input of your own in there. It has to be your version. And, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the um, the bands, the, the the musicians of the 50s that influenced me so much. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, the way that he interprets other people's songs made a huge impression on me. Uh, when Jerry Lee does a song, it becomes his. Yeah. If somebody else wrote it, you forget totally about it. You just, once Jerry does it, that's Jerry's song. And that's how we felt about covering stuff. We tried very hard to cover stuff that we could, that we believed we could do better than the original. We didn't always, but sometimes I think we managed to do that. Uh, and then eventually we started writing our own stuff too. And one of the things that I'd like to point out, because we were, we were criticized quite a bit in the beginning because we didn't do much material that we wrote ourselves. I always thought that was bizarre because most people had no idea what we were doing. I mean, we didn't do top 40 songs. We didn't do songs anyone ever heard of. I mean, when you're covering a band like the Calico Wall or the Human Expression or We the People or Third Bardo, who ever heard of those bands? Some <laughs> record collector geek? So I'm not playing for him anyhow. You know what I mean? So I never understood the, the criticism, but nevertheless, the guys that were in my band were, were not playing in 1966 like I was. So in my opinion, we had to master the, the form, the musical form before we could write in that form. It only makes sense. So that's what we did. Maybe for the first two years, we might have had two original songs. Yes. but then And that wasn't my priority. The priority was just to be a great band, like the Rolling Stones. If you look at the, the first Rolling Stones album, there's not an original on there. Well, they claim to have written yeah, a four-bar instrumental on there, but it's a jam. Okay, there's no original songs. It's just old blues songs. And look where they are today, you know? And that's how I looked at the Fuzz Tones. We'll get around to it when we're ready. 
and we did. I mean, you know, we've put out several albums where every song is original, but it, it takes a while. You don't want to put out crap. You want to put out songs that are just as good as the covers you're doing. So, mm. you know, it takes a while to get that good that you can do that. I remember a couple of years ago watching a, a, a I love mine films on music bands there was one on Twisted Sister which was quite interesting because they'd spent a long time touring and playing live in really big kind of arenas having huge audiences and no record company wanted to touch them which seemed bizarre because as soon as someone signed them they sold phenomenal quantity of records so they made a few people very rich I mean did you have a problem trying to get yourself on a label or did that come together quite quickly? No it's very very hard very hard when we, on our third year of existence, or maybe fourth, fourth year, yeah, 1984, uh, we recorded our first single, two songs, Bad News Travels Fast and, and Brand New Man. And there was a, a record collector shop in the East Village. Now, maybe it was West Village, but it was Greenwich Village. It was called Venus Records. and. Uh, one of the guys who worked there wanted to put it out. And he just dicked us around and dicked us around. And while he dicked us around, several bands started forming in New York. There were the Vipers, the Trifles, the Mad Violets, all, all within this amount of time. And they all started cheapskates and they all started popping up. And then this little band called the Out of Place started up. They were like 15-year-old kids. They were the first ones to get a record out while, while this guy sat on ours. So what happens is when you're starting a movement, and we started a movement, we absolutely were the ones who started the New York garage punk movement. There's, I don't think there's any debate about it. But when the other bands get their records out first, History kind of overlooks who started it, you know? And uh, that was something that really rubbed us the wrong way, as you could imagine, because we had worked several years while none of these bands were even around. Suddenly we record something and, and it, it sits on a shelf while everybody else puts out their records. Um, there was this other record store called Midnight Records and they had a label. And so they first put out the Out of Place, then they put out the Cheapskates, Probably then they put out the Vipers. And then I finally got tired of waiting and I gave them the single and they put out uh, Bad News Travels Fast. And that went on, uh, on to uh, get on the English charts. And then we did a very short tour of the Midwest. And it was the only time we ever toured America in our whole 40 year existence, two weeks in the Midwest. And, and one of the shows was recorded and I came back and I gave it to Midnight Records and they released that as an album. And that was called Leave Your Mind at Home. And because of that album, uh, there was a guy in London called John Curd. He was a, a very big time booking agent in London at the time. And he had a record label called ABC. And he came over to New York specifically to get us to give him leave your mind at home for Europe. But in the meantime, we had already recorded lysergic emanations a year before and no one wanted it. No one was interested at all. And it just sat on a shelf for a whole year. So he came over and he saw us play and he was really into the band. And he wanted to put out Leave Your Mind at Home. And, and we said, would you be interested in our studio album? And he was shocked because nobody had wanted it. He put it out and it, it, it immediately went up the charts in, uh, in England. And so he booked this tour for us to open for the damned for, the, for two and a half months. And, you know, the rest is history. I think I'm not positive, but I think the album probably got up to maybe 10, number 10 on the charts. Uh, in other parts of Europe, it went number one. 
Nobody ever told us this, of course, because there were probably royalties due to us that we certainly never received from anybody. But I, I got the, uh, the charts many years later. We were number one in Greece and number one in Spain over people like Bruce Springsteen and Elvis Costello. We were number one. Yes. Got a penny, not one penny. But you achieved gold. I thought it was a gold record that that debut album. Yes, that that was that was later uh, after leave um, live in Europe became uh, a gold record for us on Music Maniac. That was after the band broke up, and that would instigated the LA lineup because that record went gold. Uh, I got a uh, an offer to do a tour after the band had broken up. So I just quickly put together the uh, LA lineup. I had already moved to LA to, to reform the band. And then we went out and, uh, and did that. And then over time, Lysergic Emanations went gold, but over a long, long period of time, it's been on five different labels. It's, it's still out there today. It's never been out of print. Yes. And now because of another uh, London-based company, almost every single album we've ever done is, is, has been re-released and is out on the market right now. Almost every one. Amazing. That is incredible. And what's your memory of touring for three months with the, uh, <laughs> with the Damned? I mean, that must, oh, have been, it, that must have been quite a trek. I mean, it, it was quite a trip, yeah. Because, I mean, we had only played New York and then a couple things outside, like... Um, Baltimore, DC, Boston, no, no, nothing really big, you know, maybe 300 people at the most. Yeah. And we went over to London and uh, we met the damned, the big punk band. They had a, they had a big bus with a bar and a bathroom and cots and the whole bit, you know, this big punk band. Yes. And we were driving around in this little blue bus that fit six and we had five and then we had a driver and a roadie. The windows were closed at all time in the back. We, we, I mean, there was no windows. We couldn't even see out. There was no heat in the van and, we, and this was in the winter. It was horrible. It was truly horrible. Uh, at the time, England, you couldn't get a decent meal in England. All the food was really garbage. And so the damned had a cook and he would cook for everybody on the tour, one meal. So every, so we only ate once a day. Uh, the damned would allow us 10 minutes for sound check. And we were only allowed to use half the stage, only one of their spotlights, they had three, and half of the PA, and we had to, to set up in front of them. And despite all that, we usually blew them off the stage. And you can ask anyone who, who saw us back then, because I've heard it over and over and over for the last 35 years. Yes. And that's not saying they weren't good, because they were. they were. They were very good, but we were better. And, uh, and the damned, for the most part, were pretty big fans. Dave Vanian stood on the side of the stage every single night and watched our whole entire show. Yes, so I, I think they they had their big singles. I can't say anything bad about him, you know. They, they were good guys. I mean, they, they helped us out, you know. I mean, but it was very difficult, under very difficult uh, conditions. Yeah. And, uh, meanwhile, we had a lot of really great breaks. I mean, we played the Hammersmith Palais, the Hammersmith Odeon. Uh, these were huge venues, and uh, big rock stars came to to the shows, Jimmy Page, Lemmy, uh, Michael Monroe, Stiv Vaders. Uh, I had known Stiv for years, so Stiv came down with Lemmy and and uh, and Michael Monroe and uh, and a chick from girl girl school and a bass player for Killing Joke all came to see us. Came down and hung out with us in the dressing room and stuff. That that can like you know kind of be pretty satisfying to a band that was just starting to make it in New York, come over and get all that, you know. And then we came back and we were climbing the charts and we had two major labels waiting to sign us in New York. And the bass player and the drummer quit. My God, so, uh, it was a deja vu. So what, did they just have enough or were you just like... 
Well, to be perfectly honest, um, I was screwing the guitar player's girlfriend. I don't, I don't think he cared for that too much, and I don't blame him. No, um, and it was very hard to uh, rectify that. I tried, but it, we never could get over that obstacle. And uh, that was very, very stupid on my part. So meanwhile, after they left, I, it was back to, to square one, really. We could not find any guitarists or drummers that could even remotely come close to the two guys we had. And we weren't going to come back out and not be as good as we were, you know? So meanwhile, the, uh, the offers for the, um, for the major label deals fell through. Uh, then this drummer that we had been following for seven years, trying to get to join our band, he lived in Connecticut. He would play once a year in New York with his band. And through the grapevine, I heard that his band finally broke up and I was able to get him. And he was perfect. I mean, this guy was meant to be the Fuzzstones drummer. So we had a four piece and then Deb dropped out. <laughs> so then we were down to three. And it, you can't imagine, you know, all the other bands are getting big. They're all getting deals and tours and a whole bit. And the band who started it can't get off the ground. And we did that for a year, auditioning people, and we just couldn't get anywhere. So me and the drummer headed out to L.A., it started all over again. And the irony is we found a bass player and a guitar player who had moved there from New York. They were old friends of mine. So that's who I asked. So the LA band in, in reality was, was four fifths a New York band. So, you know, we, uh, we've, we've always been a New York band, even, even later on, if it's only at heart. But that's that's where the band's roots are. Yes, and it must. And be I really truly don't believe a band like us could could have originated from anywhere other than New York. Uh, the LA bands that were in this sort of scene were very uh, mild compared to us. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And because um, I've often thought, you know, because most bands have a bit of a five-year narrative you know, especially in the UK, in that sort of 80s kind of, a lot of the bands that I've mentioned, or some of them, um, you know, they, they get together for 12 months. And then we had John Peel, the famous DJ, who'd give people a spin and sometimes a John Peel session. And that, that would lead to the first album. So that was kind of quite an easy yeah. narrative. But then often the second album kind of finished a lot of bands off. And, and anybody who ever toured America from the UK would often come back broken spiritually broken and that was often another thing that finished them off but that that often is enough for most people in a band but then you know then I, then you know people like Lemmy you know he was in Hawkwind that was in also the Rock and Vickers before that in the 60s but then you know he had the classic lineup with Phil Taylor and, and Fast Eddie and when that finished you know he got you know he'd gone through quite a few members so it is possible, but not many people manage to keep that enthusiasm going for a band, do they? You know, when they have to replace people, because often it's yeah. not all of it. It's often bits of it. And you must be thinking, oh, Christ, how is everyone else going to cope when I've mentioned that so-and-so is going to be part of this band now? Well, try to imagine doing this for 40 years. Yes. that <laughs> We've had at least 17 lineups with me yeah. being the only original member uh very very difficult but i just truly believe in it uh i love what we do and and i think the band is important i truly believe in the band uh, i don't think i i really don't think we've ever had the do that we should have had and i guess i'm just so stubborn i i feel like i'm going to do this until we get it I don't know if we ever will, but yeah, we, we've gotten a lot, you know, but not quite what I think the band deserves. But um, on the other end, I, I thank God that after 40 years, people still want to hear the band. You yes. Know? Uh, I'm very, very happy with that. I have a great lineup right now and people really dig it still after all these years. So I have, I have no complaints. Yeah. And obviously one of the difficult things that most people... 
and it sounds like you've also had that you know the record deal the publishing you know the ownership of music because you've you've gone through you know you were on situation two records which i think was part mm -hmm. of beggars which would have yeah. it seemed like that would have suited you more but then you're on sin records you know oh, yeah. and then well sin records was my label when i finally got fed up with not getting paid by any of the other labels the most astonishing thing was the bigger the label, the more they'd rip you off. Uh, we were on situation two, which was beggars. At the same time in America, we were on RCA. That's the world's biggest label, Elvis Presley's label. And that label never sent one copy of one of our album out for review anywhere. They didn't promote us whatsoever. And, uh, in situation two, our, our album got on the charts, never saw a penny, never saw a penny, just like ABC, never saw a penny. Uh, it just, after a while, you realize that's, that's what you can expect. So once I found that out, I, I changed the way that I do business. I ask for an advance that is what I want as an entire payment because I, I know no one's gonna send me royalties ever. And for any people out there who are forming a band, know this, you're never gonna see royalties. No matter what they tell you, it's a lie. You'll never see any royalties. So get a big fat advance. And if they don't wanna give it, and obviously they don't want your record. So, okay, I'll wait or I'll go to somebody else. And we haven't had any trouble, as you can see. We've, I think, I think to date we've, including compilations i believe the, the band has been on 35 labels maybe more yes but there's always someone who wants to put out a five stones record so you know we're doing okay yeah absolutely i mean it is it is quite an amazing story i mean and and to and i mean because you've got you know you've created so much work have you managed to sort of archive all the things you've done in, in oh, any yeah. way absolutely yes uh, i put out uh, my autobiography two years ago, it's, there was so much that it was a, a, a two book autobiography, book one, book two, uh, that's called, um, the fuzz tone. The, the first one, the, the subtitle is raising a ruckus. And that's from my birth on to the end of the lysergic emanations lineup. And then the second is the fuzz tone, a life at psychedelic velocity. And that's from uh, 1987 on to now with the current lineup. And uh, that, that details pretty much about my, my life and the fuzz tones is a major part of the book. But now this year I, I did a new book, which is the, um, the entire history of the band in pictures, a photo album. Uh, it's called Fuzz Tones Lysergic Legacy. And um, it's not out yet. Uh, but it will be out by the end of the year uh, to celebrate the 40-year anniversary. And the only text is interviews from every year. So the interviews kind of tell the story as it progresses. And that's a 360-page book. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I archive everything. Yes, absolutely. We love archiving. It's, it's, one, yeah. it's one of those things you have to do. I mean, it, what, what's kind of interesting is that the... The band is still has has you know you still have that curious you know people are still curious aren't they and interested and mm -hmm. you're still getting um, and what's also interesting is is the kind of people we get we still get kids 18 all the way up to 80 years old uh, we don't have a specific audience you know if you if you see a hardcore punk band usually the audience looks like the band. Shaved heads, tattoos, blah, blah, blah. Uh, or if you see a new romantic band, they're all dressed, you know, in ruffles and whatever, you know, on and on and on. Fuzz tones aren't like that. And I think the reason why is because even though we started the garage scene in New York, we left it too. When we went on the tour with the Damned, we kind of made ourselves part of a bigger scene that, in, that involved the Cramps and the Damned you know, bands that were similar in small ways, like, you know, The Damned had that eerie, doomy sort of uh, 
appeal when they were doing Phantasmagoria. And the Cramps always had that like horror rock sort of thing going on, but, you know, retro influenced. And so we're retro influenced, but we had all that in there as well, you know? And so it was a good combination without stepping on each other's toes, you know? So I think when you had all these garage revival bands, they were very, very content to be purist and slap each other on the back and go, hey, we're the in crowd who plays at one little dive in New York for a hundred people and stays there. Or a band like us transcends and goes to Hammersmith Palais and plays for 3000. So that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we kept playing, you know, why, why we are still playing today, because we didn't allow ourselves to be pigeonholed, despite the fact that uh, the press certainly tried their hardest. Yes, the press. I mean, yeah, do you, fuck, I mean, fuck the press. <laughs> the, you yeah. know, I got to say, every review I've ever read, I'd I'd say only maybe 10% of the reviewers seem to know anything about music beyond the last 10 years. And I just wonder how they can get those jobs if they know nothing at all about rock and roll's history. Yes, but they do look very young, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> I just often find myself thinking, God, dude, you know, I mean, it, it's, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, we're looking back a little bit. Well, there's two things. I mean, because quite a few people become slight rock and roll casualties. How did you avoid finding yourself in that kind of, oh my God, I've completely lost the plot. I need to go to... Oh, I, uh, why didn't I become a drug casualty? Yeah. Uh, because um, I wanted to be a success. I, I was really, really driven. Uh, also, I didn't... I, I already had my um, my ways of escaping. To me, rock and roll and sex were the big escapes. I, I, I'm addicted to both of them. And especially when I was young and, and the band was at its prime, uh, there was quite enough rock and roll and sex that I sure as hell didn't need to be doing drugs or I did my share of drinking because that seems to go really well with rock and roll and sex. But um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an angel. I can't say I never did any drugs, but uh, I never did anything that I felt I would become addicted to. Mm. I never did anything that I thought would hinder my chances of success. And I lived in New York for 10 years during the, the worst time to be in, in the Lower East Side. It was like nothing but junkies, biker gangs, uh, punk rockers and, uh, just, you know, the the lowest of the low, you know, there was so much junk around, it was ridiculous. And I saw a lot of people die. So that never interested me whatsoever. Yes, I know. Lemmy, Lemmy hated the heroin scene, didn't he? He, he had a big thing. But going back to CBGBs, it was interesting because a lot of those black people were really sniffy about Blondie because they suddenly, they wrote very catchy songs and hit chart success did you were you kind of one of those people who thought actually don't knock it because they've they've got a you know they've got a fast car out of here i loved blondie they were great fantastic band and debbie harriet at the time of their success was the most beautiful woman in the world i don't think anyone with eyesight could have uh, could disagree with that you know so they had everything had catchy songs, she could sing, she looked great. And what more could you want? They're a fantastic band. And also they really were uh, very influenced by 60s music. Uh, You can hear a lot of girl group stuff, some surf, some uh, castaways, liar liar type stuff in in their music. So that grabbed me right away, you know? I really like catchy music, music with a hook. Yes. You know, I try to write all the fuzz tone stuff with a hook, you know, something that's going to grab you the first time you want to go back and hear that chorus again, or you want to hear that guitar riff again, you know, because that's what I loved about rock and roll. Yeah. And I think my third ever single was Denise Denise, or Denise. And I think incredible, that was incredible, right? That and how about a, the video for that? It was amazing. That I mean, was one sexy video. 
I think I was like, okay, I've got to go and buy that single. And like you said at the beginning, it was quite a big deal because you had to save up money, which was, you know, not, it wasn't a lot, but if you didn't have any money, it does take a long time to save 80p in, in the UK. Yeah. But I just remember that was an obscure single from 1962, I, you know, I found out decades later. So it was interesting that um, they didn't write that one either. So um, Yeah, Randy and the Rainbows. That's it. I would have yeah. never thought, remember that. Yeah. Randy, I'm, oh, you're not as old as me. No, but I mean, I I recently sort of did some little bit of, oh, well, who is this? You know, Randy. And well, they did a great um, cover of Liar Liar, too. If you never heard it, you should check it out. Real good. Yes, a classic. And, yeah. and you obviously still have that kind of urge to create new music. There's no kind of... Totally, standard. totally. We, we just finished our new album. It'll be out in, in the fall. Uh, the album title is New York City. Uh, speaking of New York City, it's it's our tribute to our roots, and uh, I have almost a whole album, whole albums worth of original music that I've been writing over the last two years, uh, that uh, probably will be recording after that. Yes, and do you so always I mean, doing something? Yes, well, you've got books coming out here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. I do love a good graphic not graphic but you know a good sort of documented book about yes yeah like you said and do you, i mean do you ever sort of i mean you probably don't actually but you know like you've had so many members of the band do they sometimes do you ever get in touch with people and say or do they get or have those bridges all been well and truly you know <laughs> finished um burnt i'm out of the 17 lineups I'm still friends with three ex-members and everybody else pretty much hates me. <laughs> <laughs> That'll uh, be it. Yes, <laughs> there you go. I guess it doesn't give you sleepless nights, does it? No, hardly. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Do you, which one do you reckon? Uh, at, at least they, they, they uh, think about me. They do. Are they, <laughs> do you still feel there's a tension there, even though it's decades? Yeah, it, I think what it is, it is um, various members in the past didn't really believe in the band, and then they quit the band, and then they saw that the band went on without them, and sometimes got even more successful. And they didn't. So then they resented it. But they quit. That's what happens. You know, life goes on. Yeah. It's really is to that story you know that's it i mean was there any is there anybody in particular you think is a shame no. that it's no fair enough. a shame what i just wondered if debs was one of those people that you thought oh, I, i'm not gonna name names no that's I, won't, I won't give them that satisfaction <laughs> but that's what would you i mean just i mean what would you say to an 18 year old self because obviously you know like i said you know two of my heroes were david bowie and lemmy and one thing that was amazing about them was that they stuck, they only had one path. They were like, we're doing music, that's it, you know. That's and right. they did it. And and but very few people will do that. And you're another person who's done that. I mean, what would you, which is quite unique, really, what would you say to an 18-year-old self if you could have said something back back at those kind of early years? Well, I would say if you're really not in it for the long haul, don't even bother to start because you will meet so many obstacles that it takes a really, really dedicated, stubborn force of nature to keep going. Uh, it is really hard. And nowadays, I can't even imagine starting out because uh, the music world has changed so much since we started. I mean, for you to have any real true success, you have to have the, the record companies actually dictate every single bit of what you're going to do. When you see someone like Beyonce or Rhiannon or whatever their names are, I don't, I don't know who's big now, but it's all really prepackaged, prefab, pablum bullshit crap. And not, there's no heartfelt anything in it and the vocals uh, uh most of the time i don't even think they're singing live because it never sounds live to me you know i mean they're they're live in front of an audience but 
the vocals never waver in in uh, volume or anything like like they do when you're singing on a live mic and they always have headphones on and they're doing this choreography and all this so what does this have to do with rock and roll at least you know you can call it something else i guess i don't know what you call it i just hate it so much i i can't stand modern music it's just awful so if if you if you think you want to start music you have to know that there aren't talent scouts like there used to be going around trying to find original sounding bands nobody's doing that and and if you want to be big like that you're probably going to have to sell your soul literally sell your soul mm. i'm not prepared to do that either so i don't know if i can offer anything more than just say you know stick to your to the music you love and play for people who love that music and that's the only way you're going to be happy if you're doing it for money you're in for a very big disappointment Yes, this is true. And what? And just and just lastly, why Berlin? How did you find yourself going from uh, Pennsylvania to Berlin? Well, ever since uh, I first came to Europe, I realized uh, that a lot of the things that I was um, brainwashed into believing about America weren't true. You know, like uh, all my life, I kept hearing that famous phrase, we're the most free country in the world. And uh, a lot of Americans believed that, but those are Americans that never went outside of America. When I started touring, I started to realize that almost every country we played in, uh, the people seemed to have a lot more personal freedom than we had in America. Also, the band was much better received in Europe than we were in America. So I just really wanted to move here to Europe. And I actually was able to move to Holland in 1994. I moved there for a year. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't the right place that I should have moved to. It, it wasn't a happening scene there or anything like that. I just, I took whatever I could get thinking that the band was big enough that I could get a band together in Europe and from wherever I was, and then we could start touring Europe, but it didn't work out. So then, uh, oh, and uh, sorry, I moved to England in 91, but that only lasted five months and the bass player missed his mommy. So that broke up. So, you know, there were these back and forths. Um, in 2005, uh, we um, we changed organists and uh, got Lana Loveland in, and Lana Loveland lived in Berlin. I met her in uh, in California. She was in a band there, but she was moving to Berlin the next day. I had invited her to play in the band, so we kept in touch. And uh, it took a little while, but we eventually arranged it for her to tour with us, and we met in. Holland at our roadies commune and we practiced the band and then uh, we went out and we did our first tour together and it sounded great. She was perfect for us musically. And then in the interim, we fell in love on tour. So uh, we both left our spouses and I moved to Berlin and here I am and Lana's Right here next to me. Next to you, yes, oh, absolutely. I thought that was that, her. That was that covers the last fifteen years. That does. And Eric and Marco, are they based in Berlin or elsewhere? Uh, Eric is from Delft, Holland. Uh, Marco is from, I believe, Torino, Italy, but he lives in Berlin now. Uh, we uh, we also have a new guitarist we just added. His name is Rodrigo. I could tell you his last name if I was looking at it, but I can't pronounce it offhand. I can't remember exactly. But he was from the band 50 Foot Combo, and right. he lives in Belgium. And uh, we have a substitute keyboard player who's been filling in for Lana pretty much for the last four years because uh, four years ago we had a child. So she's been pretty much doing mom duty except for gigs in Berlin. Uh, we're hoping to get her 
out there to play some shows when this uh, when this whole lockdown thing goes away. Yes, well, we'll see how it goes. It sounds good, but that's well, the plan. This is the plan. Well, hopefully, because you've got your 40th anniversary coming up, haven't you? Well, it's all of this year, so hopefully we'll get a few gigs in. We only got one, and then this happened. Yes, I know. Well, fingers crossed. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you for giving me your time. Thank you. And thanks, Lana, it. as well, for um, sorting that out. Lana, yeah. you're a star. Yeah. We need you young people. It, <laughs> tell it, Tell her again. Lana, you're a star. You need to help old people with bad, you know, with our, our sort of inability to log in. Is she cool? Okay, I'll. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. You well, do. look. Have a great day and all night, actually. Um, but thanks a lot. And um, okay, I'll you keep bet. in touch. Okay. See you okay. later. Bye bye. Okay. Take care. And that, dear listener, was me in conversation with Rudy Petrudi from. The first times. Thank you as much for listening. If you still are, well done. You deserve a medal. Um, yeah, if you want to contact me for whatever reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. And also all these interviews have been um, archived and I've uh, put those on podcasts. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Do check it out. Anyway, look, stay safe. Have a great week. And um, there will be more where this came from. Aren't you lucky?